Have you ever wondered how deep tech companies actually start? Well, we were too. So in this podcast, we'll be interviewing scientists and entrepreneurs that have taken their ideas out of the lab and turned them into startups. I'm Antonia. And I'm Christina. And this is Startup the Science. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to our final expert episode of season two. And this is an amazing way to end season two. Our guest today is Marie Weiler. She's an investment manager at Cottonwood Tech Fund, and she is also a bit of an entrepreneur herself. She's currently the chief legal officer at a startup called Lipicote, which she'll explain more about in the episode. Just a bit about Cottonwood, though. They are a Dutch-American early-stage venture capital fund, and the best part is... They only invest in high-tech, disruptive hardware and hard science startups. This is basically the definition of all the startups in the Enum network. So this is why we were so excited to have a chat with her. She's full of advice, both from an investor's standpoint, as well as from a startup or entrepreneurial standpoint. So with that being said, here's our chat with Marie Weiler from Cottonwood Tech Fund. Hi, Marie. Welcome to Startup the Science. We're very glad that uh, you could be with us today and that you could share some of your experience with us. So some people might already know who you are just from uh, from reading the introduction to, to, our, to this episode, but I'd love to hear a little bit more from you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background, your experience so far. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, there are not that many women active in hardware investments. So giving me the opportunity to tell more about my work as a hardware investor is wonderful. So my name is Marie Weiler. I come from the Netherlands. I'm 29 years old and I work as an investment manager at Cottonwood Technology Fund, which is a venture capital fund that invests in seed and early stage high-tech and hardware startups. Um, what we consider high-tech and hardware is, for example, photonics, nanotech, automotive technology, medtech, um, physical technology, not software. And besides my work for Cottonwood, I am also involved with a Dutch startup called Lipicote, which is uh, a, a nanotech and a biotech startup active in infection control. It's very interesting. And I have a lot of questions about both of these <laughs> different roles you play. Um, let's, let's, start with the, let's start with a startup, actually, because it's sure. closer to our heart as we work with a lot of startups in the nanotech space and in the broader field of advanced materials. Um, so I'm curious to know if, uh, I assume that you didn't study this, right? You didn't study nanotechnology? I did not. So how did you get involved in a startup in nanotech? And does it have to do with being an investor also in this space? Or were they two totally separate ventures? Well, I'm really happy you're asking this question because I'm actually a woman in tech without a STEM degree. And I'm trying to spread the word that even though it's wonderful to have a STEM degree, so if that's something you want to pursue and you're able to pursue, I fully support that. But not having a STEM degree does not mean you cannot work in technology. So here I am, a woman in tech without a STEM degree. I studied corporate law and economic policy. And while I was in graduate school, I started working to pay for my studies and I started working for a fintech startup that was active in wealth management in helping wealthy families with 
investment projects. And while doing that, helping wealthy families with deciding what to invest in, I realized I really liked the startup investments and I really liked the technology investments. So after four years working for this startup, I wanted to advance my career, develop myself further. And I decided to see if I could work at a venture capital fund specialized in very early stage technology. I knew Cottonwood. I knew the general partner in the Netherlands. So I contacted him and I sent an open application. There was no vacancy. It took him half a year to create a position for me that was right for my skill set and what the investment firm needed. So that's another advice for people who are listening. If you are really excited about working somewhere, do not be afraid to send an open application. You've got no, you can get yes. And I basically got my dream job by just asking if I could work there and contribute. And I have a wonderful boss and that makes all the difference in the world. And this boss actually was also involved with Lipicote, the nanotech biotech startup. And he said that his belief is that as a startup investor, it's very useful to also have experience with startup business development. I had that because I worked for a fintech startup, but I wanted to continue. And since I moved on into investing in high tech and hardware, he said, maybe it will be useful for you to start doing business development at a nanotech startup, because that's the kind of startup we could invest in. And then you see maybe the differences with building up more of a SaaS fintech startup versus a hardware high-tech startup. So that's why I ended up combining the two roles and I love it. Now, what were these differences you noticed? Because this is something that we focus on a lot. Uh, we, we try to communicate and tell everyone we need to almost that there is a difference between startups and software uh, and startups in hardware and more specifically than hardware in advanced materials and photonics and uh, nanotech, for example, fields where a lot of R&D is required before you even have a product to take to market. And not just a lot of time, but also a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of expertise that might be hard to find and so on. Um, what were some of the differences that you noticed and was that transition from, from digital fintech uh, world to, to the more nanotech world? Was that difficult for you or how did you find it? Certainly a difference is that you need a lot more money to build up a high-tech startup versus a digital startup. It takes more time. Given that Lipicode is active in the healthcare industry, there are also issues with regulation. So before you can enter market, you need to make sure that your product fulfills all the regulatory requirements. Whereas a fintech startup that helps uh, wealthy families or investors, you just go online, you build your platform, you hire a developer who, who builds it, and you start and you can generate revenues a lot quicker. And um, what some SaaS investors find really strange about our way of working as hardware investors is that actually the unicorn in our portfolio uh, for Cottonwood is um, uh, Scorpio's technologies in the United States. And in the first years, like the first seven years, there was zero revenue. This is a photonics startup. For Which is not uncommon, right? I mean, exactly. 
this is normal. This is absolutely normal for photonics or other hardware. So the first seven years, zero revenue. And then year eight, 100 million in revenues. So in 12 months, the startup went from zero revenue to 100 million. Tell me about a SaaS startup that does that in one year time. That's usually not the case. It's more gradually the growth. So it's completely different. Completely different. Now, while it's not unusual for a startup in this space to not have a profit for seven years, it's also quite unusual <laughs> to have a hundred million in eight years. So I would be curious to know a little bit more about this specific case, but also just generally um, when we're looking at this field and when you're analyzing startups in, in the materials world or the broader hardware space, um, what are some of the um, some of the characteristics of successful startups? Um, maybe you can take this one, this one example of this definitely unicorn one, uh, but even some that maybe don't make a hundred million, let's say they make 10 million in their first year, even that would be. Yeah, sure. First of all, there must be some problem that your potential customer has that needs to be solved. It doesn't matter which industry you're in, but if you offer something that someone else is willing to buy from you because that person needs it, that's where it all starts. So it doesn't matter if you're fintech, if you maybe have a fashion uh, web shop or um, you, you, you are active in clean tech, there is something that you offer that people want and you do it better than alternative offerers of that specific technology or service. So what Cottonwood does as a hardware investor is that we invest in technology that basically does not exist. So it's completely new. It's a technical invention from a university usually. It's a spin-off. It just doesn't exist yet. For example, one of our Dutch portfolio companies is Eurokite. They have invented flexible ceramics. It's thin as a paper, like a handkerchief from paper. You can fold it, whereas ceramics, usually if you have a muck, you cannot fold it. It's hard. But this is completely flexible. You can put it around batteries and then the battery cannot overheat. It cannot catch fire. So this can be used for the batteries in electric cars. Not everyone knows this, but an electric car, the battery can overheat and then actually the, the car can catch fire. And every year people die because of this. So the invention of your kite is preventing the overheating, preventing the car from catching fire, thus saving lives. Furthermore, you can also put it in consumer electronics. So a smartphone also has a battery that can overheat. And by preventing that, you're making a huge difference. This material called flex ceramics, the flexible ceramics from your kite does not exist yet. They're the first in the world. They have patents, they have IP. That's a typical cottonwood invention that we would like to invest in and that we ended up doing. Um, it takes time to build this up. For example, the machine that your kite uses to make the material cost 1 million euros. And this is again the difference between a fintech or SaaS startup. Usually you do not need 1 million for some sort of machine, but in hardware, this is possible. So first of all, it has to be new, uh, completely 
disruptive, right? Because something like this has never been done before. And people need it. There is a need for it and people find it important. We want to prevent people from being, uh, you know, confronted with a fire, whether it's the smartphone or your car. This has to do with safety. Makes perfect sense. And this idea that it has to be a need, an unmet need um, in the market, in a specific industry, whether it's a niche or a larger industry, sounds really obvious, right? It sounds really clear that if no one needs your product, it's not going to work. But we actually see a lot of startups who have something that's very interesting from a technical uh, perspective, from a scientific perspective, even it's a development um, that has never been done before in science. And they often think that this is enough, right? It's, it's a great scientific breakthrough, so why wouldn't it sell? But the reality is that if there's no specific market gap that it fills, it's, it's maybe not as necessary, even if it's interesting. Um, so this is one of the things you look for, right? That it's new, that it fits um, a, a gap in the market or that it does something way better than existing technology. Are there any other criteria that you look at first when you're analyzing a startup just as a first glance? A checklist that you go through? We definitely have a checklist. Unfortunately, this is partly confidential information, so I cannot share the full checklist. I'm sorry. But one of the things we'll definitely look at um, is the team. Usually when you invest pre-seed and seed, there's not really a team yet. So for us, it's more which skills do we need to add to the team to make sure that this company can start. Um, we are... Uh, a strong believer in diversity. For us, diversity is more than gender. Gender is important for diversity, but it could also be people with a different educational background or a different ethnicity or growing up in a different country. It could be a veteran. It could be someone with a disability, just someone with a completely different perspective on lives, um, bringing the creativity and when we look at the founders, which in our case are usually technical people who spend years in a lab at a technical research institution to, to do the invention, usually these people have less or not a lot of experience with commercialization or running a business. So one of the first things we do is hiring a senior business developer with years of industry experience relevant for the startup to help with turning this invention into a commercial product. Yeah. So this would be one of the things that you can help them with. I suppose if they already have someone on board that uh, is focusing on the business side and that has experience in that field, that's even better, but it's not a necessary condition for you to, to invest in a startup. Is that right? No, as long as the technical founders are open-minded towards having a new person on the team in a business development role. For example, one startup that we did not invest in was actually, it was a great, great product, but the founder, when we asked him, how do you see the company and the team five years from now? What is your future vision? He sort of drew like an Eiffel Tower from Paris with him on top and all the way down were other people who were doing some things, but it was clear that he wasn't willing to delegate any of the tasks. He wasn't willing to share responsibilities. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, how, how skilled you are, not one person can fulfill every single role in a growing company. At one point, you need to collaborate with other people. You need to be a team player. 
And it was so clear that this person had a very hard time being a team player. So we decided we can't move forward with this because we're, we're going to have very difficult discussions with this person. So we want someone who says, yes, I'd love to have a senior business developer on the team who's going to help me and teach me how to do this so I can learn. I need to learn myself, by the way. I'm, I'm learning every single day. And that's part of your career, learning. So don't be afraid that you don't have skills yet. You can gain the skills, but be open-minded towards learning from others. Of course. And I think that's that's such a good point that I, I noticed as well in our work with the startups. The vast majority of startups do not have this issue, but then there's always this tiny minority that believe that as long as the technology is strong and um, they've explained what the market need is, the team is less important. And it's totally fine if they have one person driving it forever and it's going to be okay. And it's obviously not really the case. And now I'm very curious to know who the startup was, but you don't have to. <laughs> I'm sorry. I um, I keep this confidential. I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus here. It's just an example that we can all learn from. And one other important criterion for us is that there is IP, especially because we invest in high tech. When you develop a mobile app, it's often more difficult to get a patent. IP is usually not possible with some, some something like a mobile app. But in high tech, it's crucial. And for two reasons. First, we want to protect the invention from being copied, stolen. You know, we don't want it to get stolen by other people who try to build it. And then secondly, my American boss, the founder of Cottonwood Technology Fund, who has 25 years of experience in early stage tech venture capital, has seen himself in those 25 years that if a high-tech startup has a strong IP portfolio, the exit value is going to be much, much higher, which is good for the founder and good for the investor because you want to make the money back and get a good return because you're taking a lot of risk. We put in between one and three million in the first round when it's pre-seed or seed. So there's nothing. So we're taking a huge risk. So we must de-risk and try to minimize the risks. And one way of doing that is making sure that there's a strong IP portfolio. So I wasn't actually going to, to go into this because for some reason I didn't think about IP right now. But uh, now that you mentioned it, I do have a question. How do we feel about startups that um, use trade secret as their IP protection and that don't necessarily want to patent anything? They just um, keep it to themselves and that's it. And they actually think that that is a better strategy to go with um, because this way they don't publish their process or um, want too many details perhaps about their materials and they... They're afraid that others might be able to replicate that if they have it written on paper somewhere. Is that good or not so good when it comes to investment? It really depends on the industry that the startup is active in. So I cannot speak for every industry. It also depends on the country where the startup is based. What is the legal framework? Um, if, if the startup is based in the, in the European Union, you have other legal protection than, for example, a startup based in China. So this all depends. I can only speak for ourselves, for Cottonwood, that we will not invest in a hardware startup that is not open-minded towards building an IP portfolio. And actually having patents for either their materials or at least applying for it. It takes time before the patent is actually granted. 
But if the startup founder says, oh, I'm not interested, I'm not even trying, that's fine with us. But then we are not the right business partner for you. There are investors who do not require IP. That's that's their strategy. And I respect that. And if that works for them, that's wonderful. But that's just not what we choose to do. Got it. So to kind of sum up, we look for four main things. I'm sure you have many other criteria on the secret checklist, but um, the four main things would be disruptive, completely new technology, uh, strong IP protection, or at least a plan for strong IP protection, a good team, and a market need. Not necessarily in this order, but uh, I've summed them up one way. Um, what are the red flags if we're looking at it from, from the opposite perspective? What um, You already mentioned one of them. If the founder or the founding team isn't open-minded about things like their IP strategy or growing their team in a different direction, that's a bit of a red flag. Are there other red flags for you in the, um, in the evaluation process of a startup? That's a really good question. For us personally, it would be a problem if the technology is maybe slightly better than some alternatives, but not very different. So um, it, it must be really new for us. And sometimes you see a new technology that is maybe interesting, but it's not really disruptive. Is it really new? No. Then it's not for Cottonwood. Maybe it's for another venture capital fund, but not for us. Um, let's see if I can think of other red flags. Well, I can give an example from another investor, an angel investor, which is uh, usually a former entrepreneur who sold his own business, made money and uses that money to invest in starting businesses, usually startups in, in the earliest stages. This angel investor invested in a software startup and he invested 50,000 euros from his own private money in that startup. And the first thing that the startup founder did was buying a Tesla car, which had nothing to do with the company. It wasn't necessary for building up the company. So the money that was put in by the investor, committed by the investor for the startup to build up the software platform was used for a super nice car for the founder. If you have that kind of a founder, that is obviously a red flag because Usually angel investors come before a venture capital fund. So if I would hear this, that's definitely a red flag. In this case, it was a software startup, so we would not have invested anyway. But I do not think you will be surprised to hear that this startup did not make it because this founder was not fully committed to the company. He thought it was really nice to, to call himself a startup founder, to have this super nice lifestyle. But in the end, it's about working hard. It's so difficult to build up a startup. This is not a, a lifestyle that you sort of choose. It's, it's, you know, it's like having your own farm with animals. You know, you're, you're always available to work, just like farmers, you know, that they wake up at night maybe because uh, the cow is giving birth and, you know, you must be there. The same with a startup. It can be that there is something you, you must be there to help. So forget about a luxurious lifestyle. That That's not the right mentality, if you ask me. I'm quite curious where that idea even comes from, that a startup founder would have a luxurious life, because I haven't seen many examples, at least not for startups at the pre-seed seed stage, that's for sure. They don't tend to be the, the richest Tesla drivers out there, but who knows? 
I think I think the problem is that maybe in the media or TV series about Silicon Valley, people think, oh, there is this this venture capital fund from Silicon Valley that puts in 20 million. Look, we got 20 million. And that sounds like, wow. But I work in Europe, even though our fund is, is partly American. It doesn't work like that. The money is meant for the company, not for you as a person. Of course, in the end, we hope that both the startup founder and us make a great return. But in the beginning, it's it's not about uh, making a lot of money. In fact, personally, me, I do not even have a car. I do not own a car. I'm a venture capital investor and I work at a startup. I have a bike. I'm Dutch. I cycle. There you go. <laughs> I use public transport. So if you come to me with a super fancy car asking for an investment, I'm like, dude or or girl i do not even have a car so do not try to impress me with your your super fancy car i don't fall for that i'm dutch we're down to earth we're practical people that's definitely something i wouldn't have thought about but a very strong point how you spend your money in the end that your investment money or any kind of money is uh, can be a red flag um, for for a founder and the other thing we've we've noticed as well is that sometimes um the the, the calculations you might make as a founder of how much money you need in the next six months, one year, especially in a very R&D focused startup, could be way off. You might think you need a million and you might end up needing a lot more because it's hard to hire, for example, material scientists in our case or engineers that are very specialized. And then next to that, you need machines and you need um, a lot more than what you think you might need. So if you go ahead and buy a Tesla car, you might, you might run out of money too soon. Um, Can I give one piece of advice for all startup founders? Um, I've always done a lot of fundraising for both the venture capital fund and for startups. And fundraising always takes longer than you think. Anticipate, prepare yourself for this. If you think that you need three months to fundraise, plan ahead for six months. Because it gives you space. Worst case scenario, you would just have the money sooner, which is great. Exactly. It <laughs> can't go bad. So to sum it all up, if you were to start one more startup right now, and this is day one of your new startup, um, what would you and your fictional team be doing from day one so that you know you're you're ready for, or not ready, but you're preparing yourself for your next and your first investment round? Okay, so um, what is the problem you solve? So the market need, what makes your startup better than competitors? I find it very strong when startups are open about who their competitors are. If you come to me, especially if you're a software startup and you say, oh, I don't have any competitors, that's probably not true when you're in software. So do not claim not to have any competitors. Be open-minded and just explain what makes you different and better. And um, think about your team, your founders. Um, what skills do you have as co-founders? If there is any skill lacking that you would need, whether it's a technical skill or a business development skill, see what you can attract, you know, to be part of your team. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. And on the competition front, we we also see startups saying there's no competitor. What they really mean when you drill down into it, that there's no technology that does as their technology does. But there might be a totally different technology that approaches the same problem. Exactly. And that could be a competitor. Be open-minded about it. 
it's it's no problem you know um look at the the fashion industry there's so many different brands for clothes and and they still coexist so that can still be the case for for any tech startup but what is it that makes you different why will you attract the customer i mean we have microsoft we have apple uh why why would people uh prefer um you know a, a, a smartphone from a specific brand or not they coexist that's not a problem so that's really good advice for for the startups listening and um, i'm sure they'll take a lot from that i'd like to to switch gears a bit now and ask you more about um the the type of investment that cottonwood looks at and why why you tend to focus on that you tend to focus on the on the hard topics right yes hard science hard science patents, all the stuff that we look at as well, a lot of nanotechnology, things like that. Um, on the other side, we have software startups. We have really where most of the European VC money, at least, is going. Yesterday, we were looking at a, a report in one of our INA meetings that showed that only 3% of European VC money goes to industrial technology. And that includes, actually also includes software, but specific for industry. So if we were to cut that 3% even more down and see just what hardware startups are getting, I would imagine it's around 1.52% of the total European VC budget, which is pretty low. So um, I guess that's not really a question. It's more a statement about why that's okay. that you guys focus on, on this field and what are the benefits and would you encourage other investors to start being more open-minded about hardware startups, about material startups more so than they have been in the past? Well, first of all, I can explain to you why there are less hardware investors coming from someone who started actually in fintech and software. Even though our returns are often a lot higher, it takes longer. You need patience. So like I explained with Scorpios, our, our, our unicorn, that for the first seven years, there were zero in revenues. A lot of investors would make this feel, you know, that this makes them feel very uncomfortable. Oh, there's no revenue. What are we going to do? But this is normal in hardware. Be patient. If you cannot afford to be that patient for money reasons or other reasons, that's difficult. So that's the reason that some investors say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I want to be able to exit in, in four years. Then you have the investors who say, I find it very interesting. I, I see the potential. I see that you guys actually have better returns than we do, but I don't understand the technology. I don't know how to analyze this. And then they're afraid to start, even though they could hire people who can help them with the analysis or they can collaborate with corporates, what we also do. That could be an argument for them that I often hear why they don't do hardware investments. Also, it has to do with trends. At one point, SaaS, B2B SaaS, got just very trendy. People were really focused on it. And a lot of people understand it when you speak about a software platform, a mobile app, whereas usually I need a little bit more time to explain what our hard science technologies um, contribute to the world. And when... Not everyone says nanotech. Oh, yeah, that's super. A lot of people say nanotech. I need to look that up. What is that? So that that's why it gets less attention. The reason we love it is because we basically have zero competition right now. We get more than 800 deals a year that come to us, startups, saying we would like you as our investor. We'll match our criteria. We can choose. 
Whereas at least in the Benelux in the Netherlands, I know several B2B SaaS investment firms that are competing for deals, which drives the valuation up. The valuation becomes higher. And if the valuation gets too high, that means your returns are going to be lower because the multiple is if you pay a lot more for something, you need to make more money to earn it back. We start very, very early. So the valuation is still quite low, which means it's easier for us to make money. And what we do is that we collaborate with the largest corporates in the world, ask them, is this the kind of technology that you would like to buy? Is this something you can use? If the corporate that we're friends with says, yes, if you invest in that technology and you build this up, I'm definitely going to be a customer. I'm willing to help you with the production. I would like to be a co-investor in a follow-on round. For us, that means great. There is really need for this. We basically already have attracted our first corporate customer. And that de-risks our investment. You validate the technology because they say, yes, we would use it. But it's more than just validating it. It's that you're actually kind of ensuring that that startup will maybe not necessarily be super successful, but at least they have their first customers to start working on pilot projects with, maybe to start seeing their first revenue come in. Um, so that's a really nice model. On the one hand, you help them with investment, but also with, with getting their first customers on board, which is very cool. Exactly. That's very important to us. We have quite a lot of large corporations that are limited partners in our venture capital fund, meaning that they're, they put money in the fund because they see us as people who scout new technologies for them and build the, develop, build the technology up so that it becomes ready for the corporate to buy it or become a co-investor in it. And it really works well for us. And I can recommend that because it, it gives you a lot more security and, and comfort knowing that there are clients ready to, to use your technology. Makes perfect sense. I think you've explained it so well that I'm hoping to see a boost in, uh, in European investors now in this space. Let's see. Yeah, because one more thing that I would like to add is that we cannot live without hardware. Take the smartphone. Everyone wants to have a smartphone nowadays. A smartphone is a combination of software and hardware. There is so much sensor technology, which is hardware, in the smartphone. Same with robots. A lot of people find robots cool. A robot is also a perfect example of a combination of software and hardware. The laptop, the same. Computers. So it's a mistake to only invest in digitalization and software and not in hardware because you need both. For sure. I, I like that uh, discussion in an IoT context as well, where everyone is looking at the software in IoT, but there have to be some things in IoT. And it's something we always mention at all of our know, events as well, though you have to focus on the actual physical objects that you touch. And those things have to have sensors probably or some special materials to interact with you in some way. Well, this has been very, very insightful. Um, I've learned a lot and I feel better now about working in the field of advanced materials than I did at the beginning of our call. And quite hopeful that this whole um, investment landscape, not just in Europe, but worldwide is going to mature and more startups are going to find it easier to get investment. Are there some final uh, words of wisdom you'd like to tell our startups and also everyone else uh, listening to this episode? I think I've covered most of it. I would like to invite people to contact me if they have questions about a career in startup business development or venture capital. Uh, look me up on LinkedIn, connect with me, send me a message. 
Um, especially, uh, I would like to welcome women and minorities to contact me because the more the merrier. And um, by increasing the diversity in the venture capital and startup ecosystem, we're enlarging the talent pool. So I'm welcoming all talents to, to enter tech. That's a wonderful message to end on. And we couldn't agree more. Christina and I run Enum without having a background in material science. So we definitely know that it can be done. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It was wonderful talking to you. And I'm sure we'll be in touch very soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup the Science. If you like our show and want to know more about what we do, check out our website at enum.berlin. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time.